Chapter 4 of Herb of Grace. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Eastman. Herb of Grace by Rosa Nuchette Carey. Chapter 4 Anna. Better to feel a love within than be lovely to the sight. Better a homely tenderness than beauty's wild delight. MacDonald Malcolm often spent a night at Queen's Gate. He made a point of never refusing his mother's invitations, and would even put off an engagement if she needed him. On this occasion he had promised to remain two nights. A meeting on behalf of a college in Japan for training native candidates for holy orders was to be held at 27 Queen's Gate that evening, and some excellent speakers, women as well as men, had been announced for that occasion. Mrs. Herrick thought the whole subject would appeal to Malcolm, and in this she was not wrong. Hitherto he had fought shy of Zanana meetings, barmaid associations, working girls' clubs, open-air spaces and people's parks, and even cabmen's shelters and drinking fountains. They were all good and worthy subjects, he had observed to Anna, and he could have tackled them singly, but not when they were piled on ad nauseum. But the Japanese college had been largely discussed in his special circle, and also in the paper of which he was the editor. The Times had even devoted one of its columns to the subject, and Mrs. Herrick had been secretly much gratified by Malcolm's readiness to be present. "'The bishop will be with us,' she said, with an inflection of pride in her tone. "'He is over here just now on account of his wife's health, and has promised to take the chair.' Then Malcolm signified his perfect willingness to make his lordship's acquaintance, and to listen to any amount of speeches and Mrs. Herrick had gone to her bed that night a happy woman. Why could not Malcolm be always like that, she thought, and then she sighed gently as she took her Bible in her hand. It opened of its own accord at Samuel's childhood and Hannah's solemn dedication of her firstborn. No passages in the well-read book had been more frequently perused. Of all the characters of Holy Writ, this Jewish mother appealed most forcibly to her imagination. The little coat brought year by year to the temple child, the precious sacrifice and oblation made in gratitude for an answered prayer, the pride and joy of the mother's heart as she stood in the court of the women and saw her boy ministering in his fair linen ephod seemed to touch her irresistibly, and in her secret soul she had envied Hannah. The evening was to be devoted to this important meeting, but the next day Malcolm had promised to take Anna for an outing. It would be her birthday, and already they had made and rejected many plans. Kew, Richmond, Hampton Court, and Henley had all been proposed, but Anna had been indifferent to each. She had been to the Royal Academy more than once, and all the best concerts were over. The weather was too hot for sightseeing, and in her present state of languor she dreaded fatigue and crowds. 
What did the place matter after all, she said to herself, as long as Malcolm was with her? Her rest and enjoyment were in his society. To sit beside him and listen to his dear voice, and tell him all her little joys and troubles. The program was still a blank when Malcolm knocked at his mother's door. Anderson received him with a beaming face. The old man had grown a trifle stiff and rheumatic of late years, but he still kept a sharp eye on his coadjutor, the weak-minded and erring Charles. "'They are not expecting you just yet, Mr. Malcolm,' observed Anderson respectfully. "'The mistress has a committee in the library, and Miss Anna is in the drawing-room along with Charles and the carpenter arranging the seats.' "'What time do they dine, Anderson?' Malcolm put the question with some indifference. He knew quite well what the answer would be. "'Why, you see, Mr. Malcolm, it is past six now,' returned Anderson apologetically, "'and the meeting's for eight, and the mistress said there would be no time for dinner as the committee would not break up until seven, so she will have a cup of tea and a sandwich.' "'Oh, indeed,' returned Malcolm dryly. I suppose Miss Anna and I are to be regaled on the same fare. No, sir, I think not. I believe Miss Anna and Dawson have contrived some sort of meal for you in the schoolroom. They have done their best, Mr. Malcolm, but what with committees and deputations, and heaven knows what, my mistress has been driven almost out of her senses. The maids are in the dining-room now, for there's to be tea and light refreshment, and they've been behindhand, too, with the plants from Covent Garden, drat them," muttered the old man irritably. He was a faithful servant, and true to his mistress's interests. But he was growing old, and there were times when he longed to sit quietly under his own fig-tree, in the Surrey village where he was born, where meetings and committees were unknown. "'Never mind, Anderson,' returned Malcolm pleasantly. We cannot entertain a bishop without some degree of fuss and discomfort. I will go up and find Miss Anna. I dare say she has nearly finished. But as he ascended the handsome staircase, he was not so certain in his own mind that this was a foregone conclusion, and again he blessed the day when he had pitched his tent in the quiet pasturage of Chelsea, where bishops and committees and drawing-room meetings never interrupted his lawful meals or impaired his digestion. For Malcolm, like many other men, abhorred that nondescript meal so dear to the feminine mind, a meat tea. The wide, softly carpeted staircase led to a spacious landing-place, fitted up with couches and easy-chairs, and ending in a small but pretty conservatory. The drawing-room was a large, well-proportioned room, with a curtained archway opening into a smaller one, which went by the name of the music-room. Here there was a grand piano, and a fine harmonium. The latter was Mrs. Herrick's special instrument. The drawing-room wore its usual aspect on these occasions. Rows of chairs and cushioned benches occupied the entire floor-space, and overflowed into the inner apartment. A crimson-covered dais or platform, decorated with plants in full bloom, and tall spreading palms, with a semicircle of comfortable easy-chairs, was the chief feature in the arrangements. And here, with the evening sunshine streaming on her, stood a tall, slim girl in a white dress, 
with a loose cluster of Shirley poppies in her hand. It made such a pretty picture that Malcolm stood quite spellbound. The crimson dais was such a rich background to the soft creamy white of the girl's dress, while the poppies, held so carelessly, added to the effect. Even the sunshine filtering through the partially drawn curtains gilded the fair hair until it shone like gold. Malcolm was almost sorry when Anna caught sight of him and ran down the steps toward him with a bright smile of welcome and two hands outstretched. "'Oh, Malcolm, I never thought you would be here yet,' she said, and her voice was very soft and clear. "'But I am so glad to see you, and I have quite finished.' Anna Sheldon was not a pretty girl, but people always said she was so interesting. Her figure was well-formed and graceful, and her expression and smile were remarkably sweet. But her features were by no means faultless, and her want of color was certainly a defect. She had beautiful hair, which was fine and fluffy as a baby's. Its tint was rather too colorless, but she wore it in a style that exactly suited her. At this moment, when her eyes were bright with pleasure and there was a flush on her face, Anna certainly looked pretty, but such moments were transient with her. Malcolm pressed her hands affectionately. Then he looked her over with brotherly freedom. "'You look very nice, dear. I see you are dressed for the evening. Are those poppies part of the toilette? Then Anna laughed and fingered her pearl necklace as though she were embarrassed by his scrutiny. No, of course not. What an absurd question. Fancy flowers at a drawing-room meeting. I am going to put them in a vase directly. Now, as mother is engaged just now, I am going to take you to the schoolroom, and nurse will give us something to eat. Feminine nectar and ambrosia, I imagine, muttered Malcolm to himself for he had partaken frequently of these schoolroom feasts. But he was determined to make the best of things during his short visit, so he linked his arm in Anna's and said cheerfully, Lead on, Hebe, and don't scatter poppies as you go, which was exactly what she was doing. The schoolroom was still Anna's special room, although it had changed in character of late years. It was a large, cheerful front room, two floors above the drawing-room, and Anna had made it very pretty and comfortable. Here she kept her books and all her treasures, and here her canaries twittered and sang in the sunshine. Malcolm, who loaded her with presents, had himself selected the handsomely framed prints that adorned the walls, his favorite Huguenot and the Black Brunswicker, and Luke Fieldus's Doctor, and some of Leader's landscapes had their places there. In this room Anna spent her leisure hours, few and far between as they were. Here she read and thought, and wrote her letters to Malcolm. Sweet maidenly letters, which he read lightly and tossed aside with a smile, not unkindly, but with the preoccupied carelessness of a busy man. The sound of their voices brought Dawson to the door. She was a little pincushiony woman, with bunched-up grey curls, which she wore in defiance of all prevailing fashions, and of which she was secretly very proud. Her complexion was still as clear and pink as a girl's, and her somewhat wide mouth was garnished by the widest of teeth. It was Dawson's boast 
that she had never sat in a dentist's chair in her life. "'I am sixty-five if I am a day,' she would say, with a quick little bird-like nod that always emphasized her statements. "'But there, mother was eighty-three when the palsy took her, and she hadn't a gap in her mouth, dear soul.' Malcolm always kissed his old nurse, for there was a warm attachment between them, and indeed he never forgot that he had owed all his childish comfort to her. "'Blessed is he who expecteth nothing,' observes the wise man, and Malcolm, who had indulged in moderate expectations in which the teapot loomed largely, was somewhat surprised by the agreeable sight of quite a tasteful little dinner-table laid for two, with a half-filled vase in the centre for which the poppies were evidently intended. Anna smiled delightedly when she saw his face, and at once proceeded to arrange her flowers, while Dawson bustled about and rang the bell, and chattered like an amiable magpie. In a very short time, the weak-minded Charles, now a reformed and steady character, and engaged to the head housemaid, brought in the tray, and a modest and appetizing little meal was served. Cutlets with sauce piquant and pigeon pie, salad such as Malcolm loved, and a delicate pudding, which seemed nothing but froth and sweets, while an excellent bottle of hock, sent up by Anderson, completed the repast. "'I wish mother could have joined us,' observed Anna regretfully. "'I did my best to persuade her, but she said there was no time. The people have not gone yet, and she has to dress, you see, so she said she would have some tea in her dressing-room and talk to you later.' "'I must just see about getting the mistress's things ready,' interrupted Dawson, but she spoke in a grumbling tone. "'Don't you fash yourself, Mr. Malcolm. I told Charles to unpack your gladstone and put out your clothes ready for the evening. My mistress won't be dressed. You may take my word for it for a good three-quarters of an hour. There is nothing like a committee for dawdling along and keeping one standing on one leg, as it were, like a pelican in the wilderness, or a stuffed goose, or anything you like to call it. Don't you let Mr. Malcolm hurry his dinner, Miss Anna, for there is nothing so bad for the digestion. A good digestion comes next to a good conscience, in my opinion. And Dawson hurried away, already primed with a scolding for her mistress, sandwiches being like the proverbial red rag to a bull to this excellent woman. Such a pack of nonsense! she ejaculated, as she took down the black satin dress from its place in the wardrobe, and shook out its lustrous folds. A lady of her age, just past fifty, and acting as though she were in her teens. For Dawson, who was a privileged person, always spoke her mind to her mistress. Indeed, it was rumored in the household that Mrs. Herrick stood somewhat in awe of her faithful retainer, and it was certainly the fact that if any of the servants had incurred their mistress's displeasure, Dawson was always the mediator, and brought the apology or conciliatory message. Mrs. Herrick had a great respect for the straightforward, honest little woman, who was never afraid to speak the truth on any occasion, and she was sufficiently magnanimous to forgive her sharp speeches. "'Dawson is worth her weight in gold,' she would say sometimes. "'When the children were young, I was never afraid to leave them in her charge. I knew I could trust her.' And once she said with a sigh, 
I cannot forget her devotion to my dear Florence. She watched beside her night and day, and yet there were other nurses. I shall never forget her saying to me, Dear Miss Flo mustn't wake up and find herself among strangers, or she will be scared, poor lamb. She will like to see her old nurse's face, bless her. And it seemed to us all as though she lived without sleep. She was right, too, went on Mrs. Herrick softly, for when Florence caught sight of her she put out her arms with such a smile. It is my own dear nurse, they heard her say. Those were my darling's last words. When Dawson had left the room, Malcolm looked at Anna with a smile. Well, he said tentatively, have you made up your mind about tomorrow? Is it to be Q or Cookham and Henley? But to his surprise, the question seemed to embarrass the girl. We have been so often to Q, she returned in a hesitating voice, and though the quarry woods are delightful, it will be so hot on the river. There is something I should like so much better, but I am afraid you will laugh at me. But as Malcolm continued to look at her with an indulgent smile, she went on with renewed courage. I hope you will not think me absurd, but I should so love to see your chambers in Lincoln's Inn, and Malachi, and the pigeons, and little Kit with the curly red fringe, and the old cobbler. And afterwards— And here Anna caught her breath with excitement. We could go to Cheney Walk, and have tea, and look at the river, and talk. My dear child, in quite a startled voice, what a program for a birthday! It will be just lovely, returned Anna with sparkling eyes. I do so long to see Goliath, and Yea Verily, and Babs. You know, Malcolm, I have only been twice to your rooms in Cheney Walk, once with mother, and once when we had been to the Albert Hall, and each time the Kestons were away. And you want to see little Verity. I am not sure that she is quite up to your mark, Anna. She and Goliath are rather bohemian. Oh, but you like her, and she makes you so happy and comfortable. I want to know your friends, Malcolm. It seems to bring you nearer. And Anna's eyes grew wistful. Are you sure my mother will approve of your program? Then Anna smiled and nodded assent. She will call me a silly, fanciful child, she replied laughing. Mother does not understand sentimentality. But I am a privileged person on my birthday. Now, Malcolm, please do not throw cold water on my little scheme. Certainly not. We will go to the Seven Dials, if you like. Only I wish I had known beforehand. Verity is occasionally like the renowned Mother Hubbard. Her cupboard is bare. You will have to put up with plain bread and butter, I expect. What does that matter? returned Anna scornfully. Thank you, Malcolm, dear. Then we will have a real good time. I think we shall be able to carry out your modest program, replied Malcolm. Wait a moment, I have an idea. Suppose we beard the lion in his den. In other words, look up Caleb Martin and my umbrella in Todd Morton's lane. And then he gave Anna a graphic account of the little adventure, and as he expected, received her warm approval. Oh, yes, you shall take me there, too, she observed. I must see that poor little kit. It was so like you to think of her comfort. 
and here Anna laid a soft little hand on his coat-sleeve. "'Malcolm, I am afraid I ought not to let you talk any longer. I heard Mother go into her dressing-room ten minutes ago, and she is never long over her toilet.' "'That means I must get into my war-paint, too, or Dawson will be coming in search of me.' And then he went off to his old room, leaving Anna looking thoughtfully out of the window. "'Tomorrow I shall be one and twenty, she said to herself. "'It seems a great age, but Malcolm is nearly nine years older.' And then she added to herself in a whisper, "'And from morning to night we shall be together.' just he and I, our own two selves. And there was a soft look of contentment on Anna's face. End of chapter 4